Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Uh, we've been looking forward to this event for a very, very long time. Um, the whole conversation, um, I'm just, I can't wait to, to get into the discussion. Um, the way the event will work is uh, Rashika will uh, read first for about uh, five, eight minutes, and then uh, we'll be joined by Schwinn. So Rashika Tumar was raised in Southern California. She holds a BA in English Literature from the University of California, Irvine, and an MFA from Columbia University. A recent Wallace Stegner Fellow, she is currently a Jones Lecturer at Stanford University. Uh, she'll be joined by Xuin Juliana Wang, who was born in Heilongjiang, China, and moved to L.A. when she was seven years old. She was a Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford University and received her MFA from Columbia University. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, Plowshares, The Best American, Non-Required Reading, and the Pushcart Prize Anthology. She lives in California. Please welcome Rishika. Hi. I'm going to try to perch in a way that does not expose anything. Um, uh, so this book is, I like to say it's about um, a young woman who disappears in the Nevada desert and her best friend who goes looking for her. Um, her best friend is the narrator of the novel. Her name is Kale. Um, she's 17 years old uh, during the events of the summer that this book covers. Um, and the chapters are out of order, which everyone on Amazon Reviews is very mad about. Um, <laughs> it's very confusing to them. Uh, so I'll be reading from chapter 47, which uh, is in the middle of the book. Um, and what else do you need to know? Uh, Penny and Kale work at a diner together, and Penny is the girl who has gone missing. Um, and I'm going to skip over a little part. Um, in the middle, you won't notice, but it I don't want to ruin anything for you. Okay. Is this Okay. The person I wanted to see most was Clara, lone, enigmatic Clara. When I arrived for my shift at the diner, she was taking an order by the window, and the way the afternoon light hit her platinum hair and thin legs and arms, they filled up with light. I wanted to tell Penny, we've mistaken her all this time. She was a witch or an angel. She headed to the counter carrying a stack of dirty plates and cups. And when she saw me standing with my apron dangling by the hand, she slowed, the expression on her face reminding me of one of the nurses in Lamb's hospital room. I had become something people were frightened to look upon. After a few hours of slinging plates and taking orders, I remembered how it was done. I answered diner patrons who brightened when I served them their coffee and pie, as if I had been on a long journey and only just returned. No one mentioned Penny at all. Even the regulars who sat at the counter and spent each day asking Penny for ketchup or a refill, who knew her voice and smiles and hands, who said her name three times every visit, even they didn't ask where she was. 
Maybe they were afraid to say her name out loud, to test the boundary of unknown space and tip the fates in either direction. Other things were altogether not the same. Clara continued to search me for cracks in the molding, the fragile places where I might snap. Through the server window, Rico moved quickly between the counter and stove. When he caught my eye, he looked away, knowing words were needed and not knowing which ones to use. I was markedly slower than before, like someone redistributing weight around a phantom limb. Clara left at dusk and following her exit, the narrow diner appeared to double in size. There were suddenly twice as many tables and chairs. The civilized patrons swallowing coffee and toast transformed into repellent maws masticating paste. The sight of them brought to mind Lamb vomiting his yellow bile. If anyone noticed when I sat a glass of Coke down with a shaky hand or took a few extra minutes to sort change from the register, they didn't say. Until Penny returned or Jake hired a new waitress, the diner would close overnight. After we locked up, Rico scraped his knives against the stove, wiping down the griddles. I scrubbed the counters and swept the floors, transferring tubs of ice cream from the cold case to the backroom freezer. After I carried the last one inside, I shut the heavy door and turned over an empty mop bucket, taking a seat to collect myself, rubbing my bare arms to get the goosebumps to disappear. Rico materialized in the doorway, untying his apron. Gonita, tengo que irme. Ven conmigo. You go. I'll stay and finish up. He hesitated. I felt a small twinge of panic at the prospect of being left alone, but I forced a smile. Rico, a father too. I'm okay, I promise. Rico shook his head and gave me a long look as he gathered his things from his locker. How could I tell him? I was afraid I'd never be comfortable in the dark again. Making him stay would only delay the inevitable. I heard him moving around the front of the diner, stacking chairs on tables before his keys rattled in the front door. After a few moments, I forced myself to stand and turned over the mop bucket, rolling it over to the ground sink. I poured bleach into the bin and ran the hose. Even after I turned off the faucet, I could hear the water trickling from the pipe behind the hollow wall. A stream of cool air escaped the crack between two loose tiles, blowing gently against my cheek. I kept my eyes fixed resolutely on the mop bucket. I didn't want to see what might lurk in the crawl space behind. A man, a skeleton. I scanned the back room, the giant walk-in freezer, and rows of shelving, boxes of stock, stock stacked high enough to hide behind. From where I stood, I couldn't quite see around the corner. The heavy emergency door Rico disabled so he could sneak out for a cigarette between customers. He was meant to lock the door after closing, but we never checked. Even Rico could have forgotten. Tonight, a million other nights. I remembered the lie fed to Fisher, how it might not have been a lie at all. A man Penny was afraid of. A man who frequented the diner and lingered outside, waiting for her to finish her shift. I could feel the formless vapor seeping in, settling in the dark corners of the room. I pushed the mop bucket in a corner and wiped my hands on my apron, surprised to find them unsteady. There would never be a good time to come back here, not unless Penny came back too. The phone rang as I was pulling off my apron. I grabbed the receiver and stood on my tiptoes in an effort to see around the corner of the room. Jake's. Kale, it's Fisher. 
Though his voice grew more familiar as he spoke, something kept me from feeling relief. I just tried you at home. I want you to come down to the station when you can. We might have found something. What? I twisted the phone cord tight around my finger, watching the tip of my finger turn pink, then red. Come by the station tomorrow. There's something I want you to take a look at. The tip of my finger was purple now. I waited to feel it. Are you still there? He asked. Yeah, I heard you. Isn't it a little earlier for you to be back at work? What do you mean? When I picked you up from the hospital, you were... I thought you'd take some time. I'm sure they'll understand. Picked me up when? That inky vapor was collecting in the corners of the room and seemed to coalesce, lurching closer across the floor. Because here was a fragment of memory entirely lost to me, never to be recovered. Kale, weren't you wondering how you got home? No, I thought. I unwrapped my finger from the cord. There it was, a sharp pain running through to my wrist. Pinpricks. The doctor gave me something to relax, I said to him. There was a resident. I thought, what had I thought? I was stupid. I was looking for you. I remembered you, when you called before, you said you were at the hospital. The doctor explained everything. It's okay not to remember. No, it isn't. There were moments Lam was in the hospital that I couldn't forget, no matter how much I longed to. But I also meant, it's not okay that I don't remember you. The idea that we shared an encounter I couldn't recall. Fisher wasn't anyone to be afraid of. He wasn't the Sandman or a stranger. He wasn't like the men who lingered on the stools at the diner, watching how Penny moved. But I recalled again his finger moving on my knuckle, the involuntary thrill, and my hesitation, too. The weight of Fisher's hand on the back of my neck, his thumb moving down my spine. It was almost funny to recall my embarrassment and that white-hot shame. It was almost entirely gone now. It was as if the doctor had cut me open while I was sleeping and carved out all the useless feelings. I would have to search carefully to find out if anything remained. Are you all right? Fisher asked. It's only, I'm surprised the dogs let you in. They nearly didn't. Well, how did you convince them? Kale, I had something they wanted. I had you. Thank you. amazing um this is a wild book i it's ruled by women um it is thrilling and tender and i feel really lucky that you wrote it so that it exists and um i think there's some lines in here about survival and friendship that you're going to want to tattoo all over your arms and uh if you haven't gotten it already i can almost guarantee you'll stay up all night reading it um I feel like we should start by talking about the, you know, inspiration behind the book. <laughs> There's a line in here that I love, the authority of it. Let me tell you about desert people. So I think maybe we can begin with your inspiration for the story. Um, yeah, I, I know we'll talk about the setting of the West a little later, but I grew up in Southern California about two and a half hours from the border, three hours from Vegas. So I spent a lot of time <clears throat> kind of in a psychically similar 
landscape. Um, and I have vivid memories of kind of driving along that landscape with my friends and kind of getting into trouble and just how young we felt and how uh, invincible we felt and kind of the moments where we realized as we were growing up that we weren't um, as invincible as we thought we were. Um, so I wanted to write a book about the West as I and my friends had experienced it, which uh, was, you know, socioeconomically uh, lower middle class. Um, I'm the child of immigrants. Um, it was, I think, like a representation of the West that I hadn't really seen in the books that I was reading and wanted uh, to explore. And also um, just that feeling of really close friendship that you make with those friends that you have when you're growing up before you kind of even know who you are, which is so different than kind of how we make friends as we get older um, based on like, you know, we work in the same industry or uh, we live on the same subway line. So uh, so you just kind of like hang out because your, your kids are friends or something. But I think it's so interesting how you make these lifelong friends uh, when you're in elementary school, middle school, high school, before you kind of even know any of that um, and like what the basis of that friendship is and how it changes as you grow up. Um, so that's kind of what I was thinking about. Cool. So I... Um, I felt like the mystery elements of this book kept bringing to mind Haruki Murakami as I was reading it, how um, I felt involved in many mysteries um, unraveling at the same time. I'm wondering if you think uh, that genre is something that you, you know, kind of tried to use the techniques of? Right? Yeah, um, I really love noir, uh, film noir, and... I've kind of have always been really interested in, um, if you couldn't tell from the reading, like I'm a little dark. Um, and <laughs> I've just always kind of been drawn to mystery and, um, and you know, I've experienced enough like violence and trauma to kind of like mm -hmm. be thinking about that a lot. Um, so it's just kind of everything I write kind of goes back to that. Um, I was kind of trying to balance a way of utilizing those elements without kind of um, the book being genre. Like I wanted yeah. it to be literary, but I also mm -hmm. kind of wanted to use those tropes and it was the kind of like a balancing act mm -hmm. to do that. And you, you can judge and leave an Amazon review <laughs> to tell me how well I did. Um, yeah, I just, I what I like about obviously those, you know, I, I watch Law and Order like mm -hmm. all night long, um, oh. which you shouldn't do. And... I'm like, I feel like it's exciting. Um, it's like this weird, I mean, there's been a lot of talk lately about like why women are interested in true crime, right? Because a lot of true crime is about violence to women. And I think being a woman who's experienced violence, I think it's like almost a way to kind of try to figure it out or try to like um, feel like you have some control over it or um, like a way of seeing an alternate kind of ending of that violence and somehow feeling lucky that, like, you know, you didn't end up on an episode of Law and Order. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's also just like something that I think as women, we're just always thinking about yeah. every day about um, like how to protect ourselves, um, how to keep ourselves safe. Um, so I think because it's like the psychic weight on our mind, it's like almost a release to kind of read or write stories. Um, that are interested in like crime and noir. 
I guess that leads to my next question. Like, how do you write violence so well? I felt that there was something you were doing here that I haven't really seen in literary fiction for a long time. I felt very um, involved in the, every scene. Was there a particular scene that you know you could kind of walk us through how it's? I mean, I think obviously the most difficult scene to write was kind of um, the climax of the, the novel, which I can't tell you about, so <laughs> it's not as fun for you to hear. But um, it was really actually incredibly difficult and awful to write and took me years to feel like I could... It, this book took me 10 years, mm -hmm. and I would say I knew that that scene was going to happen um, right when I started writing it, but it took me years to feel like I could actually write it through, and it's probably the scene that I rewrote the most. Mm -hmm. um, I... You know, I think people will have, like, different opinions about how well I, maybe I write violence, but um, I think I just wanted the reader to feel what the girls were feeling yeah. in the book um, because I felt like I had an interesting, not, like, an interesting experience, but, um, I mean, I had the youth that I had, which was... Um, adventurous or <laughs> troubled or whatever you want to say. And then I moved to New York as a young adult um, and went to graduate school. And I kind of, I thought, like, transformed myself into this very wise, like, city girl who mm -hmm. was not a victim. That's and when I met you. That's yeah. right. So you can attest to the mm -hmm. fact. No. Um, but then when I got to Columbia, suddenly um, I was independent. I was getting an education, things that were not available to me growing up. And I developed this stalker uh, kind of as I was... I was probably in the middle of writing the first draft of the story. And I think, um, like, violence and trauma is kind of like childbirth. Like, you forget a little bit, like, what that actually feels like because you have to. And I just recall that it was so crystallizing mm -hmm. for me. And it kind of just, like, reshaped, you know, all of my movements that, um, you know, I didn't think I had a pattern in terms of, like, when I left the house or when I didn't... Um, and to find out that somebody was stalking me without kind of like my knowledge and wow. kind of finding out that somebody was like watching me for months and like mm -hmm. had and knew when I was going out and when I, um, and to be like observed in that way was just um, so crystallizing that I think it really did change the book in terms mm -hmm. of I really wanted to make the reader feel like they were exactly there with the girls and to know what that experience of a woman is really like mm -hmm. in those moments. Like, yeah. how it feels. Yeah. Because I think we can talk a lot about it, but mm -hmm. um, unless you felt it, you just can't really. Yeah. I had to put the book down and look out a window. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. That was good. Um, okay, so I feel like um, every interview you've had, you've had have talked about structure, but I think that the structure is what blows me away. It's, um, we begin the book on chapter 31, and there's, some chapters that are only a single sentence, um, you know, a face is bruised before we find out why, but then we inevitably make these um, connections, and I find, I want to know how you did it. Like, how did you come up with it, and did it change along the way? Um, well, I don't necessarily, I try to write in a linear fashion, though I don't necessarily always get to do that, because I write around, as you do, like a job, so I'm writing on nights or weekends, or kind of whenever I get snatches of time. So I think um, the availability of time in terms of how I write kind of also influences how I see 
or experience books being made. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're really in kind of like shorter snippets. And then when I did finally um, finish the first, second, third draft, um, it was in a linear fashion and it just wasn't working. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel natural to the way that I kind of experience time or, um, you know, how any of us kind of experience anything, which is kind of like broken up and Mm -hmm. fragmented in today's um, world. And I was thinking about the ways that I or my friends tell stories because this is kind of an oratory structure from the first person narrator, Kale, um, looking back um, at the, the events of this summer and kind of telling the story for the first time. And I, you know, for the person that she was, she's not a forthcoming character. I just didn't think that she would sit down and kind of be able to just be like, hey, guess what happened mm-hmm. this one summer? <laughs> yeah. And kind of just like um, be able to tell it all at once. I think this is kind of how she would be able to tell it, which is like in this cyclical um, structure. I also, I worked in a substance abuse and mental health clinic Mm -hmm. for three years in New York um, while I was writing this story. And what was interesting to me was to see how clinicians, like trauma specialists approach trauma versus how I or my friends um, in like a lower socioeconomic status kind of, we're dealing with it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really interested to find out the trauma specialist. I had a kind of assumed ignorantly that uh, you you go get help if you can uh, to one of these people and you sit down and they're like, okay, tell me about the events of like April 3rd, like exactly what happened. Yeah. And you're like, okay, I woke up that morning, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And um, I was really interested to find out that they just spend months not talking about it. Like they just spend so much time getting to know you, making you feel comfortable, trusting the mm-hmm. reader. Um, teaching you coping mechanisms mm-hmm. to kind of approach the things uh, that you need to talk about, feeling like you can stop at any time. And and I, so I was thinking about kind of that structure as well when I was restructuring this. And then I just kind of like ripped the book apart and kind wow. of um, tried to find a way for it to make sense. Um, someone asked me, well, did you just like throw it against a wall and like whatever? And I was like, no, <laughs> no. It's, it's a little more complicated yeah. than that. Uh, there is like a reason mm-hmm. uh you know, that things are introduced the way that they are, like how I want you, you know, to get to know a character before learning something about them mm-hmm. um, that may, like, risk your assessment of a certain character. So it definitely was structured thoughtfully. Um, and someone else asked, like, well, if I read it, like, one, two, three, if I, like, went through the book, mm-hmm. would it even make sense? And I was like, yes, my editors checked me out. Like, I assure you yeah. it makes sense both ways. But... uh but I arranged this mm-hmm. for you in this way, so please read it this way. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you need to defend it. I think it, it reads like... I mean... <laughs> um, so I guess we have, you know, since when I met you in 2009, I think, mm-hmm. when you were a sophisticated New York okay. <laughs> uh, graduate student, um, I've, uh, is that when you began writing this book? I, you know, when I got to Columbia, I was working on a different book that I was working on for three years, which failed miserably. So I think when I met you, I was in despair. There was oh. like this year of despair mm-hmm. where I wasn't writing a novel and I was trying to write short stories, which I can't do. You do very well. Um, so I think, yeah, that was that yeah. year. But cool. uh, after I left Columbia, I started working on this book. So yeah, it took about nine, ten years to publication. Yeah, that seems like how much, how long it takes us to write books. Um, yeah. Can you, t- I mean, can you talk about like the road to publication? I feel like there's a lot of um, people yeah. want to do this. Are there? <laughs> um, 
Do you still? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I was going to graduate school, you know, many people came to talk about their books and they were like, yeah, it took me 10 years. And I was like, oh my God, what are you doing with your life? Like, how did it take you 10 years? Um, and now I know. Uh, I don't know. Like, but when you think about how long it took you, like, I mean, you wrote a collection of stories that took you how Ten long? Years. You, yeah, okay. Um, like, do you know where the time went? Like, I feel like I was just always working and you get like an hour after yeah. work and then you're tired, yeah. right? Yeah, sad, sadness. Okay. Took time. Sadness yeah. and despair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think like, I'm like, it shouldn't have taken me that long. Like, maybe if I worked harder. But I don't really think yeah. that's true. I think yeah. it just kind of like takes so as long So you wouldn't as have this book, I think. Right. Maybe I would have a book that's doing better. <laughs> um, now as I'm trying to write like another book, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, I'm really trying to work like all the time because I'm like, maybe it yeah. won't take me 10 years, but I think it's just going to take me 10 years. Cool. Um, oh, you asked like the road to publication. Yeah. I, um, I sent it out to agents. They all rejected me. I stared at it for another year and then made well. it weirder. And then I sent it out again. And the next agent um, signed me and then very luckily. Uh, and then it was sold within like three months. Wow. Yeah. After long yeah. road of despair, mm-hmm. suddenly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. How about you? There's hope. Um, I didn't send it out until I just kept working on it until I wanted to die. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then I sent it out and it, it was very quick after that. Was it like the first agent you sent it to or? No, I mean, I had I had an agent right out of Columbia. Oh, okay. But I didn't, nobody wanted to sell anything because I was writing short stories and right. they just hoped that I would write a novel. So mm-hmm. I just chugged along, you know, pretending to write a novel. Yeah, as one does. Yeah. I would like to write stories, so I envy you. Oh, no, you don't. I mean. No one wants them. I would like to do both. I guess I'm glad we're being very real here. Yeah. No one's ever going to come to another one of these. Um, I'm sorry. Um, okay, no, well, let's get back on track. So okay. um, I found that the relationship between Cal and um, her father, Lam, incredibly moving, even though there was just actually very few words exchanged between them. And I was kind of curious about what moves you in literature or what, like, what moves you in writing. I think relationships probably um, when I – kind of whenever I approach character, like now I'm writing the first draft of a new novel and it's terrible. Um, but how I'm trying to like really get to the core of a character um, is I, I think about the relationships that they have with their family and their friends um, and kind of what that intimacy looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, I think between Kale and her grandfather, I was thinking, I know a lot of, um, older, this, um, that's going to make it sound weird. I was like, I know a lot of older men, but that does not how I want to say that. Um, like my dad's 72. Um, so I think like my parents and my grandparents are just like older than, um, so I have, I guess I was thinking about my relationship with them and just how generationally, like there's, it's a completely different world and they just don't know how to express their emotions, um, at all and kind of what that feels like. And I'm, now I teach undergraduates and I'm really interested in kind of the young men that are coming in my classroom and how comfortable or not comfortable they are. I um, mean, just kind of like seeing that difference in terms of how men are relating to their emotions and like feeling like they can express themselves. Yeah. Um, 
I think there's something about like our generation who our fathers or grandfathers kind mm -hmm. of still just didn't have any of that. Um, yeah. How you like know that you're loved when they yeah. don't like, how do you know when you're, if mm -hmm. you're loved when they don't really like have the tools to kind of express that. Um, so I was just thinking a lot about yeah. like those relationships. I think it's very masterful how it came out in the writing in this book. I felt very, very <laughs> moved by that relationship. Um, so I looked up where this book is uh, set, Palmach, Nevada. It, it does not exist. No. So why did you invent it, and how did you make it so real that I wanted to go there? Um, you can go there. I mean, you can't exactly go there. But, um, I mean, it's definitely based on towns in northern Nevada, I feel like I'm going to ruin it for you guys if I tell you this. Hi. Um, I specifically, like, didn't say where it was in northern Nevada because Burning Man has ruined that whole area of Nevada, and I didn't Aww. want people to, like, think of Burning Man and then, like, ruins the book. So don't think about that when you're yeah. reading the book. But that's kind of the Black Rock Desert is around oh, where, okay. um, where it is. And I feel like I gave enough clues that, like, mm -hmm. people kind of generally sense, um, like, I've named certain towns around there um, that are accessible by highway, but... Yeah, essentially that was kind of why I didn't oh, okay. want to name anything. Yeah. I'm glad you didn't. Then. Thank you. Um, so what are some of the questions that you're trying to answer with writing? I think I'm always attracted to writing about women. Um, ever since I grew up and I started writing stories when I was seven or eight, and I've just always really been interested in writing women and kind of finding out I think they're just so, I think we're so mysterious and powerful and compelling. Mm -hmm. I think that's why I like noir too. Like, right. um, even though those old detective stories are like from the perspective of a man, they're really centered around like the female mystique. And there's always like a woman at the center of those mysteries. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think I want to write women that kind of change history. Or I like, I feel like with some of this, I want to rewrite history as if like women ruled. Um, I mean, the ending of the book is kind of like yeah. me playing with that idea a little bit of, of like, I can't really say, but <laughs> I mean, I don't want to like ruin Right. It. But um, yeah, I mean, especially right now, I'm, the new book that I'm working on is about the occult. Mm -hmm. um, oh, tell us about the new book you're working on. <laughs> it's about the occult. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but kind of back in time and I'm thinking that was like one area in history where women could kind of um, embody control by, I mean, either pretending or really depending on if you, what you believe, like uh, their supernatural kind of abilities or spiritual abilities. Um, and I think that's really interesting that that was a way that they could kind of gain control in this really patriarchal society. So that makes what I'm working on sound really boring and like a feminist um, no. study, but yeah, I'm just playing around with that and um, and some really weird, like, fucked up occult stuff Will it be a in the 1800s. Will um, Actually, I'm trying to write from the perspective... There's three characters, but I'm trying to write from the perspective of a male for the first time since graduate school and kind of, like, on the heels of this book. It's a really um, strange enterprise because I'm reading all of their diaries and they're just, like, awfully misogynistic. And I'm like, how am I going to believably inhabit the space of like a man at this time and have compassion for him uh because that's what writing is it's just like 
practicing compassion mm-hmm. um, and putting yourself in other people's shoes. And I'm having a really hard time with it. So I'm going to, mm-hmm. my, um, my goal is to, I guess, like spend more time with men and try to figure out how they think. <laughs> um, I'm not looking forward to it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, we're going to open up to questions now. That's a good question. I think it really, pretty much everything for me kind of comes through character. So once I kind of understand who they are and kind of how they approach the world and how they're moving around the world and who they'd be attracted to or where they come from, that makes me feel like I have the authority to kind of speak for them. But it's also a lot of editing. Like probably the thing that I do the most editing on is the dialogue because I feel like I can always get their ear a little bit closer to who they are just as I get to know them more and more through every draft. So I think um, that's probably what I edit the most. I'm also trying to do different things with dialogue now because um, working on a book for 10 years, you, you like see your own words for 10 years mm-hmm. and you just, you're like, you see all the patterns that you have. Um, so I'm trying to, to kind of do like a totally different thing with dialogue in my next project. So we'll see how that goes. I think the idea that people have about California is that it's all L.A., basically. Like, it's all palm trees and sun and surfers, and, like, it's really easygoing. Um, And growing up where I grew up in the Inland Empire, it's uh, definitely a red county. Like, um, just uh, not a lot of access to education or the beach or, like, any of the things that people think of when they think of California. Um, It's like very deserty and kind of like back roads and backwards. Um, there's a great KKK chapter in Riverside. <laughs> yeah. it's, I'm like, oh God. Um, which I knew growing up and kind of like at this political time, it's interesting to kind of see them all come out of the woodwork and people be really surprised by like the fact that they exist or the fact that they're in Portland. I'm like, oh yes, like yeah. they're out here. Um, hopefully none of you, but <laughs> um, I guess you wouldn't be here. But Yeah, just that California is way more conservative than people think, that it's way more diverse than people think socioeconomically, uh, culturally. um, California could be like three states, you know, like Mm -hmm. Southern California, the middle, uh, the grapevine, and Northern California is so different just like culturally and kind of what they value and and that it has changed so much. But I think at its heart, the area, like the specific kind of areas have kind of Mm -hmm. remained the same, agricultural and... um, urban and Northern California, God knows. I live there now. It's awful. Hi. Talk about your writing process and how you come up with ideas. I think, I don't know if I do come up with ideas. I feel like these are all, all the things I write about are like obsessions that I've always had maybe. And I'm, um, and then writing a story is just like one particular, um, like culmination of that like I've always been interested in women I think I've always been interested in like um the occult or um kind of like spiritual elements um and I've always been interested in the desert and then there's just like one story is just kind of like one way that I I've teased out like one element of that I have another actual short story about the desert 
that I'd really like to finish someday. Um, but I, you know, you hope that you don't keep writing the same book over and over again. Uh, but I think that every author kind of mm -hmm. is obsessed with, like, Don DeLillo is just obsessed with doom, yeah. which I love. Um, I think, you know, writers have, like, three or four obsessions that they just kind of keep returning to um, over and over again. Oh, thank you for coming. I wanted to ask, I mean, I want to be there for like 10 years from Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm also curious about like, how do you keep reading in your work? Like, for so long, and also like the label and the process of getting to like the project. Like, how do you feel like you change it as you're trying to make it Are you a writer as well? Yeah. Um, we're sorry. Um, I think it's, I've always known that it's what I wanted to do most. I didn't always know that it was what I was going to do as a career, but that has never been a mystery to me. Like I've always known if somebody gave me a million dollars and I didn't have to work tomorrow, like this is what I want to do is write stories. So I think the 10 years thing is there's never anything else that I came across when I was like working other full-time jobs like, I didn't have another great idea where I was like, oh, now I'm really interested in, like, psychology or something. Mm -hmm. I was always kind of like, this is always what I wanted to do the most. And I think in some ways, maybe because I didn't, I had to, like, fight for it. Like, I had to fight to find the time for it. It kind of, you know how, like, when you're in a relationship and you see the guy every day and you're like, ah, oh, this person again. But then you take some space, you know, and it's like the romance reemerges. I think that's kind of what it is like with writing, like, I felt so eager to like get back to trying to find time to write this, you know, book for five days of the week when I got to it on Saturday, you know, like a part of me was like, why did I want to do like, why did I want to have time to do this? This sucks. Like, I don't actually know what to write, you know, today. Um, but then I was like, well, this is my time. Like, this is all I kind of have to do it. And I've been wanting to do it. Or like, I know if I don't do it, I'm just going to feel even shittier for the next five to seven days. I tell my students that like, if you want to be a writer, it feels like you have homework every day for the rest of your life. Like there's no end, you know, you just feel like constantly guilty that you didn't, I feel guilty. I didn't work today. I tried to work mm -hmm. on the plane. I was exhausted. I slept. Um, yeah, it's just constantly, it's like, I don't even write to feel good. I write to feel less bad, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. So it's just, it's like going to the gym, you know, like, you just keep going because you know if you don't, it just gets worse. Like, it never gets better. I'm 35. I'm just doing this to maintain at this point, you know? Like, nothing's getting better. Um, so that's kind of, I think, the 10 years thing. Also, I took out a shitload of loans mm. for Columbia, which I still haven't paid off. So I was like, like what am I going to do? Like, go back at another master's? Yeah. Like, I can't afford that. So, mm -hmm. And some part of me was like, okay you know, do this for 10 years and then see what happens. Like, give yourself a real shot. And then as 10 years approached, I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to yeah. do? Um, you just have to keep doing it because, you know, this is what you want to do. And um, and also, I think, like, really knowing that it's not supposed to feel good, which I don't think people say enough. Like, those people who are like, oh, writing's so fun. Like, why are you doing it if you're complaining? Fuck you. Yeah. It's hard. So... Yeah. yeah, if it feels awful, that's just what it is. Yeah. And I feel like we came up through, like, I feel like Stanford, you know, it just things like that help you feel legitimate in society. 
I feel like I had a lot of trouble with that personally, like feeling like completely out of step with the world, like that no one understood why I just sat in a room all day, year after year, seemingly endlessly, you know? I think that felt, that was like a, um, like one of the biggest obstacles for me. But I think, you know, like things like once in a while you get, the world throws you a bone. You're like, cool. And then you can just keep going on for another couple of months until you can get another one. And then you, at the end, you've made this amazing thing that you're proud of. Then, I mean, what else is like, why, why anything, you know? Also think about all the shitty people you went to school with whose books are out. (laughs) And you're, it's like, if they can do it, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. The Real Housewives have novels. Or they have like books. So. Yeah. Logic the rapper has one. Yeah, very bad. Yeah. Yes. All right. <laughs> I think it's like the absence of anything. It's kind of terrifying to think about. Like, I love the city because there's so much to do. Um, but I think I love the city because there's so much to do because I grew up where there was absolutely nothing to do. And you're just uh, alone with yourself and kind of it takes you back, I think, to your most elemental self. Like you can't run from yourself when there's nothing there. You kind of have to like think about where you're going to go with your life or, you know, like there's no there aren't a lot of options. Um, so I think it teaches you to be really self-reliant um, and just like be at your core you have to be comfortable with yourself in the in the desert or in like any kind of isolation um because there's nothing else to distract you from the crushing despair it's amazing it's an amazing book you guys should all get it here you did julie Oh. She's very smart. Hand in hand. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.